So let's do what we've just sang. Daniel chapter 5. Let's let the Lord speak to our hearts from this text. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. And as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. Near the lampstand in the royal palace, the king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. Queen, probably more precisely the queen mother, or maybe even Nebuchadnezzar's wife, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you, Daniel, one of the exiles my father, the king, brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you will be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, you may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king. The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, 
All the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven. Until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mini, mini, tikal ufarsin. This is what these words mean. Mini. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tikal. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perish. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then, at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. This is the word of God. This is how he is speaking to us today. Let's pray. Father, as a congregation, we have spent time this morning enjoying the fact that you've gathered here with us and we are in your presence. It's moved our hearts and caused our hearts to burn within us, Lord. At the thought that the living God of the universe, the Lord of glory, is with us. Emmanuel. To know, Father, that if you are for us, who can be against us? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so, our Father, we have been led to sing to you, to speak to us. Lord, I pray that there would be no obstacle in this building. That there would be no evil presence that would withhold the presence and power of God and the enablement of God to speak to our hearts, the Holy Spirit to come upon us and fill us with your presence, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would find in your servant access, enablement, an instrument that will speak forth your message, Father. I pray that there would be nothing in me that would preclude the full message of God to this people. I pray, Father, that you would cause in my heart a sense of urgency, Holy Spirit urgency, Father. I pray that I would well up with passion, not for passion's sake, but for your great name's sake, Lord. 
I pray that the glory of Christ would continue to hover among us. I pray, Lord, that the Shekinah of God would be here and that our lives would be transformed, our Father. I pray that we would not sit around in our lethargy. Uh, Father, we would not be complacent, that we would not be casual, that we would not be cavalier. I pray, Father, we would not be impatient. I pray, Father, that we would be in step with the Spirit of God. I pray, Father, this morning that you would take this word, your word, this message, and burn it into our hearts, Father, for your glory's sake and the need for us to be transformed by the presence and power and working of God, not by might, not by strength, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. If Belshazzar, the final king of Babylon, We're on Facebook. I wonder if he would have had to send out a message, a disclaimer to his Facebook friends that would go something like this. Something has been put on my wall. I have no idea where it came from or who put it there. And I don't even know what it means. If there's anybody of my Facebook friends who can interpret this, please tell me, what is it? Although a relatively obscure incident, really, in the, in the annals of the miraculous of God and the great stories of the Bible, this is not one that normally stands out as a, uh, one of those ones that we learned in, in, in uh, Sunday school. And it's, it's not like um, the guys in the firing furnace and Daniel in the lion's den and David and Goliath and then the handwriting on the wall. What? It doesn't sort of stand out as one of those, but in fact... In terms of pop culture and, and, and figures of speech that have been used over the years, there's two major figures of speech that actually come out of this very text that are used in, in the secular as well as the sacred. Your days are numbered, is one. And the, and the handwriting is on the wall. Now, now, we live among thousands and thousands of people who have no idea where these phrases, these sayings come from. They come from Daniel 5. Mini, mini, tikal, ufarsin. The writing is on the wall. If we can do it, it's not too hard for God, do you think? The contrast here, Daniel chapter 4, Daniel chapter 5, is the contrast between an arrogant man who gets mercy and his successor somewhere down the line who faces only judgment. That's the overriding contrast. And we're left to try and understand what is the difference between the situation in Nebuchadnezzar's time and the, and the apparent mercy and grace of God that was, that was offered to him and, and the judgment that fell upon Belshazzar suddenly. We also are responsible as God's modern interpreters to understand the message to us. It would be of minimal value for us to simply read this as a historic, miraculous event of God and not hear God to to sing together, speak, Lord, to me. Speak, Lord, to us as we gather here and 
and call upon our mighty God that we will seek until he speaks. He has a message for us, and it's, it's a message that leaps out of the text in ways that, that really pounded on my heart this week. I hope to be able to deliver to them to you with the kind of passion that God has instilled in my life. So what are the enduring lessons here? There are lessons to the godless, and those seem most obvious. But in a room like this, I want to make sure we understand there are very significant lessons to the people of God. And they're hard lessons. I want to tell you up front that I love you very much. You know what's coming when I tell you that. I love you. And God loves you. He loves you so much that he tells you something here. He warns you. He calls out to you. The merciful God of grace delivers a message. It's to four types of people. Probably more, but I'm limited by the amount of... of um, of creativity I can bring to this, I think there's four types of people that, that this message is profoundly directed at. The first is the impatient. I'm one of those. This message is to me. You couldn't notice this unless you did some research on the uh, particular incidents historically, but the distance between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5 is 23 years. Sometimes in, in, in the... In our understanding of the, of the text, we look at things like this and we realize, well, it seems like Daniel 4, right on the heels of Daniel 4 is Daniel 5. We've got Daniel 4 where, where God has done this amazing thing to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, and now God is going to do an ama- another amazing thing. And, and I can expect that, that the God that I serve is a miracle a minute kind of God. I should just expect to wake up tomorrow and have some amazing miracle happen in my life. Then Tuesday is going to be an an amazing miracle in my life and on and on it goes. And in fact, sometimes we don't realize that, that between a given chapter, there's long spans of quiet time. Was God at work? Absolutely. Did the Holy Spirit deem that it was important enough for us to hear? No. And so as you look at this, you realize that the record of God's extreme work includes long periods of quiet and waiting regularly. Now, how can we be so certain there's this gap? Well, history tells us that the overthrow of Babylon by the Persian media, uh, Median um, coalition is actually dated <laughs> There's not, it's not often that you can take a look at a chapter in the Bible and say, I know the exact date of that. But we can take Daniel chapter 5 and we know the exact date. It was April 12, 539 B.C. We also know that the end of the Nebuchadnezzar reign was in 562 B.C. So 23 years had elapsed between these two incidents. Now, I'm sure if you had been part of the exiles 23 years, you would have noticed that things were not getting better. The promise of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion and the whole idea of the possibilities of national repentance and national reform 
that, that the people of God so longed for. I mean, when they heard, when, when, when they looked again at verse 37 and realized that, that the king of Babylon was saying things like, I now praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. I, I'm sure there was a great celebration in the kingdom by God's people to say there's national reform, there's national repentance, things are going to be going God's way. And as 23 years elapsed, there was no national reform, there was no national repentance, and things seemed to go from bad to worse. And you can imagine as those people were in that situation exiled away from their homeland i mean climb into their skin for a few moments and think about it the celebrations the annual celebrations would go by year after year and their hearts would so yearn to be back in the homeland and they would cry out to god and pray to god to release them from captivity send us back oh god will you be merciful to us will you relent will you forgive us of our of our transgressions and will you send us back and as they buried loved ones in babylon longing so much to go back, or as they were separated from loved ones and, and wondered if they were still alive, their hearts cried out to God, how long, Lord, how long? Life was heavy and hard for them. They were homesick. They were no doubt persecuted in the community, bypassed for the promotions that everybody else got. Life was hard, and it hurt. But the message from God to the exiles is that change can come and will come, and that the sovereign God of the universe is over all the calendars, You know, we call out to God in the situations that we're in. You may have been praying for years for a loved one or or praying urgently that God might release you from a health challenge or, or that some wayward kid would come back to the Lord or whatever you've been praying for and you've been calling out to the Lord and calling out to the Lord and asking for a change in your circumstance. And the message of this text is the sovereign God is over all things and he had set a date of change. It was October 12, 539 B.C., So the message to the impatient and to those who long for God to respond and answer prayer, he will answer. He is in charge. You know how much I like to win. And I think we all do. Come on. Don't leave me up here hanging by myself. You know... Is there, there's nobody out here who says, oh, I, I like losing. That's who I know. There's no, there's no, I've never met anybody like that. We want to win. We want God to put us on the winning side. We want God to, to, to bring uh, repentance to our country. We want God to bring national revival to our country. We, want, we long to see the people of Oshawa come to know Christ and be saved and, and the people of Durham region and on and on. We want to be on the winning team. We want to see God win. But he has his time. Last night, I happened to be catching up on some old Facebook messages. 
And I missed out on uh, John Taylor, who'd sent, sent me one, uh, sent his fa- Facebook friends one, from our, our missionary in Ukraine, who sent a little clip of Pastor Petya Radislavov delivering his last message to his congregation before God took him home. It was eight days before the Lord took him home. And he was gaunt, looked like a skeleton. Last time I saw him, he was nothing like that. And this man who had battled cancer so courageously and had been persecuted over the years by the communists, had had churches torn down, had, had spent so many years imprisoned, a man who knew hardship, stood before his congregation on Thanksgiving and said to them, our God deserves all the praise and thanksgiving you can give to him. He has been so good to us. He has been so good to me. And I'm cutting it short, and he said, he said this, and it really stuck in my heart. He said, you know, we are the only people in all the world who can, in the hard times, still learn something about our great God. And he said, so the thi- for the things that I have learned, I thank him. And, and so we're, we're left with long periods of time sometimes in our life. But there are lessons that need to be learned that can never be learned in winning alone. And so, they stay in exile, waiting, calling out to God, crying out to the Lord, to the casual. I don't know if you noticed, but in the end of verse 37 of chapter 4, in Nebuchadnezzar's great prophetic statement, he says, and those who walk in pride, he is able to humble And we're left looking at that saying, how did we get from there? How did we get from the the king praising and glorifying God and being submissive to God and being humble before God to this hot shot, big shot king of Babylon who's holding this party with his buddies and and using the goblets, the the golden goblets of, of from the holy temple of Jerusalem to, to throw a party and, and shoving it in God's face as he praises and worships the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron. How did we go from the king of Babylon exalting the great God to the successor treating the living God like garbage? How did we get there? You're left wondering, you know, about the exiles themselves. Do you remember how excited we were in Daniel chapter 1? We were so excited because it, it occurred to us that, that while the God was, was going to take his people into captivity as a, as a response to their 
rebellion toward him. And as an act of judgment, he was going to move them into a, a place of captivity. But in so doing, we realize that God is so amazing, is so marvelous, and so outstanding that he could take judgment, and he could take discipline of his people, he could, he could, he could do blessing among his people at the same time by dropping them into a, a pagan center of darkness whereby their light could shine and, and a pagan nation could learn about the glory of God. We're left wondering if, if just maybe the, the reason that we went from Nebuchadnezzar's praising God to Belshazzar's mistreatment and abuse of God, we wonder if we're left to, to, to ask the question, did the exiles maybe miss the point? If you don't move forward on what you started, you will grow bored and bad. When God's word is relegated to just good morals rather than must do. When you stop fighting for truth and righteousness, you start falling for anything. You wear down. You know, vision will erode by a lack of passion. Lack of use, lack of effort. A yawn here. A ho-hum there. A preference to relax And I don't feel like putting out. I just don't feel like putting forth the energy. When a community of faith can only find past events of God to celebrate and talk about the heyday of the past rather than testimonies of the present. You see, Nebuchadnezzar had, in stealing the holy instruments from Jerusalem which was not right, had taken them, but in taking them, he had at least transported them and placed them in the most sacred place he had in his country. He took the implements and the instruments of a holy God of Israel, and he took them and he placed them in the trophy case of of, of his sacred gods. Not ideal, but respectful. Belshazzar, in a big shot move, turns God's holy stuff into party favors and drags it out of its sacred hiding place to show off to all of his buddies. Look at me, King Belshazzar of the great Babylonian empire. I can take the holy things of Jerusalem and use them for common purposes All I want because I don't believe the God of Israel even is a God. Ringing, of course, in the ears of the ancient and modern readers alike is the Nebuchadnezzar incident. When a king got arrogant before God. But 23 years of dust had seemed to uh, embolden Belshazzar, who becomes very cocky before God. He hasn't even heard about Daniel. 
You know, I wonder as I think about the look of our own landscape and the responsibility we have, the, the need for passion and urgency and commitment. I, I wonder as we think about ourselves and our own setting and our own situation, are, are, we not, are we not a community, are we not a church with every holy advantage? Are, are we not? This is a rhetorical question. This is a question you can answer. Are we, are we not a community? I mean, talk to me. Show me some passion. Are we not a community that has every holy advantage? All right, we'll see if we can work this into a frenzy. Are, are, we, not, are we not a people who give evidence and testimony to the reality of a living God? We're going to knock the socks off of Durham region. We are, are we not among God's best option and offering to Durham region for the truth? Are we? Are we not it? Are we? I mean, in this darkness, in this present darkness, all around us. We're, we're not the only ones. We're not it. We're, we're not the only, the only faithful. No, but we're the faithful few. In, in comparison to the size and magnitude of our region and the work that needs to be done, has God not entrusted to us to be salt and to be light and to make a difference that, that people might know? I mean, we wonder... We, we, we wring our hands and we wonder around us that the increasing godlessness of our region, the increasing godlessness of our province, the increasing godlessness of our country, uh, maybe the exiles are not shining the light bright enough. Maybe they're growing more and more disrespectful of God because... You are more and more disrespectful of God. I am more and more disrespectful of God. Or, or maybe, maybe just casual. Maybe just lethargic. Maybe I just can't get enough energy up to make a difference. Maybe I just yawn and maybe I just have a preference to relax. Maybe that's what happened there. And then one day they all woke up and said, how did it get here? How did it go from the king offering this great doxology to the God of eternity. And now we have a king over us who deigns to take the holy instruments of God and use them as party favors at a drunken debauchery party. How does that happen? It happens when God's people become cavalier. You know, pride will always lead to blasphemy, which will lead to idolatry. The slide from theological respect to hardened resistance is swift. But then, as he became more and more emboldened and cocky, Daniel looks at Belshazzar in verse 24 and says to him, verse 23 at the end, Though you knew... About your forefather. By the way, Belshazzar was probably fifth after Nebuchadnezzar. There was all kind of political intrigue and murders and slaughters and all kinds of things. He says, but you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. 
You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Rather, you used what was meant to honor God to bring him dishonor. Now, I've got to cut us to the chase here. Because I don't want to miss the application that God has laid on my heart. It's easy to take a text like this and just deflect it. And say, oh, the godless people all around us, God is going to judge. This is a message for us. And I want to, if I can, with permission, I want to get pastoral for a moment. There are five things that I see around us that I hope none of us are guilty of. But there are five things I see around us that are examples of using what was meant for sacred to be set apart to honor God and is being misused and abused to dishonor God. And it's being done among God's people. To me, this is the powerful application of this text. Because the theme, the reality of this is the audacity of taking something that was meant to honor God to dishonor him. To somehow prove him impotent or unimportant or not powerful or not even existent. And the five things that I see are these. The first is this. The handling of the word of God. The word of God has been given to us to honor God, never to dishonor him. And I'm, I'm becoming increasingly concerned about the realities of Christianity as it relates to the postmodern approach to scriptural interpretation. It's not new. It's old. For those of you who know anything about church, church history, you will know that the mid-18th century became a time of significant erosion in the confidence in God's word. It was the German higher critics who came along and continued to, um, who, who, who criticized the miraculous in the scripture to the point where it eroded the confidence of God's people in the word of God. Such damage was done that huge swath of Christendom was derailed uh, and, and became unusable by God for several centuries up until the present time. The higher criticism that eroded people's confidence in the miraculous of the Bible worked its way into the great institutions of learning in England and America. The Harvards, the Yales, the Union Seminaries, the University of Chicago's, places that once taught the word of God with passion and vigor, were infected by those people who, who infected people with a lack of, of, of confidence in the miraculous. And when you develop a lack of confidence in the miraculous things of the word of God, eventually and sooner than later, you lose your zeal for evangelism. You lose your ability to evangelize. You lose your confidence in the gospel because our gospel message is a miraculous message. 
Our gospel message is a miraculous truth. Our gospel message is that the second person of the Trinity came to earth, the incarnation, to live among us. It's a miracle. And that same God uh, lived a perfect sinless life among us, doing many miracles while he was among us, and that he went to the cross to die for our sins, and that he was buried, and on the third day he rose from the grave uh, alive. That's a miracle. If you lose your confidence in the miraculous of the scriptures, you will lose your confidence in evangelism. You will lose your confidence in the gospel. And huge, gigantic swath of Christendom has lost its confidence. And it's rearing its head over and over again. And I want to say to you, who are readers and study things, that you all the time need to force yourself into a fresh dose of Psalm 119-sizing yourselves. To look there in the psalm and to understand how David revered the word of God and how he, how he allowed it to build into his life. The scriptures are not merely a source of information that increasingly in our culture is being asked to adjust to the interpretation of other sources of intelligence. That somehow science is becoming the new scripture. I shared with you before that in our culture, lawyers are the new priesthood, and now I see that scientists are becoming the new prophets. It is imperative for us to have a high view of the scriptures of God. Anything less dishonors him with something that was meant to honor him. The second is this, sacred gatherings. When we relegate the sacrament of communion and baptism to optional or non-essential. We are taking what was meant to honor God and dishonor him with it. When we, when we uh, find ourselves lacking the energy to, to systematically discipline ourselves to gather with God's people and worship at the sacred gatherings of God's people, we are in effect telling our neighbors and our friends that God isn't really all that important to me, that worshiping my alleged great God is not all that significantly important. It's one of those things that I'll do if I have leftover time on my calendar. Don't let the sacred gatherings become optional. They are not. The third is Christian liberty in our bodies as the temple of the living God. Nothing dramatizes Daniel 5 more forcefully to me than a bunch of saucy young Christian college kids showing off their freedoms in Christ, partying it up with the spirits, small s, and a decided lack of the filling of the Holy Spirit. Nothing in my mind dramatizes this text more than that. Now, I think all of us in here, or most of us in here, at least of my age, as I shared this with the deacons the other night, are either recovering legalists or recovering from legalism, one or the other. Okay, we all understand that. Jesus Christ did not set us free so that we could cast off restraint. He did not give us his Holy Spirit 
that we might use the Spirit of God or that we might abuse the Spirit of God by dishonoring our lives and our bodies. Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians chapter 5.1, it is for freedom that you have been set free. It is for freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom to cast off restraint? No, a thousand times no. Freedom from self and sin. So that no longer are you to pull yourself towards sin, but rather you have been freed from that. Whether it's the party scene, it's what you're, whether it's what you're viewing or what you're doing online with your computers, or whether it's the sexuality scene, with Christi- which Christianity said in an article just several months ago, declared that the sexuality of Christians versus non-Christians in the ages of 18 to 30 is virtually identical. That's using something that was meant to honor God to dishonor him. That's just putting it in God's face. The fourth is the body of Christ itself. I am growing increasingly weary and quite passionately opposed to anybody who says, I like Jesus, but I don't really like his church. I know it's cute and it's selling some books. Think about it. Rick, we like you, but we don't really want Lynn hanging around. You know, when you tell Jesus that you like him or you love him, but you don't love his bride, that's taking something that was meant to honor the Lord and dishonor him with it. Jesus Christ died for us, his bride. Are we perfect? No. Are we messy? Yes. Do we get it right all the time? No. Are, are we doing everything that, that blesses everybody? No. Are, 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 are we in need of some, some reform and some help and some repentance? Yes. But Jesus loves us anyway. He loves his bride. He loves the church. And the fourth or the fifth is this, taking God seriously, following through. When God tweaks your heart and you pray or do some act of pro- and promise some sort of reform because God has been moving in your heart and you've promised and you've prayed and you've come here and you've prayed or you've sat there and you've prayed and God has put something in your heart and you've said, yes, Lord, I, I'm hearing you. I'm hearing what you want, Lord, and you don't do it. You are taking it and putting it in God's face. Something that was meant for honor. That moment, that moment where the Spirit of God graciously tweaked your heart was a moment that was meant for his honor. You got to follow through by his strength and by his grace. We've run out of time, but let me suffice to say that this big shot Babylonian king went from beating his breast, saying, how great am I, look at this great party I'm throwing with all my buds, to screaming like a little girl with a writing on the wall. You see, um, God was evaluating Belshazzar using terminology like mina, an amount of, of, of currency, tekel, a shekel, Currency, Ufarsen, divided, 
half cent. Basically, what God said is this. Hey, half cent, you're through. Next. That's how the story ends. So let me just say this to you. The kings come and go. Nations come and go. People come and go. The king of glory is still in charge. Is overall right today. Is watching over you. Is encouraging you. Giving you passion. Giving you urgency. To the intelligent, the smart money is always on God. So let me just encourage you this morning. That this is time for the Holy Spirit of God to be allowed to do some soul searching with respect to sauciness and the possibilities that there's some passive aggression left in your life where you're folding the arms of your heart. While it may not look on the outside, on the inside, God knows where you're at. So as we close our service this morning, and we uh, join our hearts together in song, would you let the Holy Spirit of God speak to you about whether there's any pride or arrogance or sauciness in you? Is your life turned over to the Lord for honorable purposes in every possible way, using what was meant to honor God to truly honor Him? Let's sit down and bow our heads for a moment, and, and then we'll be ready to go. I just... I just want, as we, as we have a few moments of quiet here, I don't want you to rush away from this application because we sang together as a congregation, Lord, speak to me. Speak to me. Tell me what you want me to know, what you want changed in my life, and then enable me. And so I think there are three main things that you just need to take to the Lord and the possibilities that he wants to speak to you on these three main areas. Am, am, I, am I waiting on you, Lord, in prayer? And have I become discouraged? Have I become... Um, so impatient that I've, I've, I've started to have a, a bad sense towards you, Lord. I've started bad-mouthing you or just ignoring you or, or I've, I've quit talking to you. Lord, give me back that patience of waiting on you, knowing you're in charge, Lord. Not to give up, but to stay with you, Lord. And, and the secondary is, is maybe, maybe I just haven't been letting my light shine. I haven't been... I haven't been salt, the saltiness of, of, of the earth that I'm supposed to be. I, I have not been giving the kind of passion and energy and urgency and enthusiasm toward the things of God. And, and in so doing, I'm sending a message to everybody around that my God's not really all that important to me. I, I give him a little bit that's left over. Or, or maybe you've been allowing your life to be a dishonor to God. And in so doing, you embolden the people who are hostile toward God to be even less respectful of Him. If our lives are a mess, if our lives show no respect for God, why would anyone else? So if God is speaking to thee in any of those areas, lay them before the Lord this morning and let the Holy Spirit speak to you and make the changes that are necessary. Make the resolve to change through God's strength today. And then once you've settled that with God this morning, then... We'll see you back here next Sunday. Our Father, thank you. Now work in our hearts and our lives in Jesus' name.